So today, it's just the two of us. And we like it when just the two of us get to talk, because then we don't have to even try to pretend that we actually know something about any of the topics that we're talking about. But today, I'm starting out our conversation because I want to start out by asking Mark as if he is the one who should be knowledgeable about these topics. And in particular, I continue to be befuddled, confused, and annoyed by all of this ESG stuff, particularly as it applies to the sovereign market. So I'm going to start out with baby steps and ask Mark to explain to me sort of what happens with liability. So a, a question that I've had, and I think I, I'm pretty sure I made some incorrect assertions about this in a prior episode, uh, but the question was, does an issuer, and we can think of the sovereign issuer since that's a tends to be our focus, does an issuer really have any liability if it fails to perform on its green promises or its social promises? And I had made the assertion that it looks like there is none because there's no event of default for failing to satisfy these requirements. Now, I think I'm wrong there because an event of default is really just an early warning trigger. So maybe investors don't care about early warnings here, but maybe that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't actually sue if the issuer does not perform. So Mark, I've had this very long-winded start to this question that I've had that I think I... I have to apologize to any listeners who took me seriously. Hopefully they learn not to. Uh, But I think I was just plain wrong on the law here. I don't know that you were plain wrong. I think when we first started talking about this question, and, and to be clear, the question is just whether these promises to use proceeds for particular you know, climate-related purposes or for socially beneficial purposes, broadly defined, whether these promises are enforceable. I think you and I maybe had different contracts in mind. So some of them, it's, I think, pretty clear that the promise is legally binding and failure to keep it would be an event of default. But um, for some of them, it's really weird. And I think these were the ones that you had in mind. And although podcasting is a terrible format for this, I'm just going to read the type of language that is especially confusing to us. So this is from a 2020 prospectus for Mexican uh, green bonds or um, SDG bonds in general, um, where you know they're issued in accordance with this framework for you know, addressing social or environmental goals and so forth. And there is language in the list of events of default that would be broad enough to cover failure to, to comply, but it's pretty 
it's pretty broad. It's like catch-all. Nothing specifically says, hey, if we don't use the money the way we said we were going to use it, if we don't pursue these um, social or environmental goals, that's an event of default. It's just a catch-all, right, for any other failure to honor the terms of the agreement. But my reading is, you know, this is a term of the agreement. And so you have at least a decent argument that there's been a default if the government doesn't do anything. But then here's this language in the prospectus. Although the SDG framework contemplates certain practices with respect to reporting and use of proceeds, any failure by Mexico to conform to these practices does not constitute to give rise to, or give rise to a breach or an event of default under the notes, which seems to be saying, not as a matter of contract language, but as a matter of the disclosure, it seems to be saying like, hey, look, even though the contract kind of looks like it's telling you we're gonna use proceeds for these you know, environmentally friendly purposes and so forth, if we don't, that's not a breach or an event of default. Okay, so that's, um, that's, I think, the question. And maybe we need to use a common model, like let's use this one to have this discussion, because I find this really, really confusing, me too. Mark, maybe this will help me get a little more clarity, although uh, you, you set this out very helpfully. And the fact that there is such language in the Mexican contract is important because, you know, Mexico is always a leader in terms of documentation in this market. My guess is if they have it, then a lot of sovereigns are using this kind of sort of weaselly language to promise one thing and then say, well, we promised it, but we're not really promising anything. But, but before we get to the, the sort of bullshit factor on these, let's say that, you know, if you promise me you're gonna be green and, and you're not green, I think of it as, you know, that you, you fail to comply with your promise. So uh, since we have a contract, I get to sue you. Putting aside everything else, but then when I think about, well, what are my damages? Would I have any damages? I, it's in a bond, I know how to, well, actually, given our prior episode, I don't know how to calculate damages properly. But assuming that, you know, sort of the, the payments, I know the payment stream. If you don't give me the payment stream, I can figure out what you owe me. Those are the damages if you don't give me what you promised to give me with some adjustments but you promise to be green and be all environmentally wonderful and then you don't do it. What are my damages? Like, how do I think about my damages? I mean- Are there damages? You have the, in principle, you have an assuming it's an event of default not to do what the issuer said it was gonna do. You've got the right to accelerate. So, okay, so, so put aside, put aside acceleration. So let's say that that mealy mouth language about how it's not an event of default in the Mexican prospectus holds, and we don't pay attention to the more generalized language uh, that you read. Uh, let's say it's not an event of default. Can I just still sue anyway, saying you promised to be good and you, you're not being good? 
Well, it also says it not a, it's not a breach, but let's just ignore that. that part yeah, no, let, let, you're right. Let's ignore that because that, I mean, that's just, I mean, that just as a matter of basic contract law, I want to ask you about that, whether well, that, that works, but let, just damages. Are there damages? Are these just not worth the paper they're written on? Well, so, no, they're not worth the paper they're written on, but that doesn't mean they're not worth anything. You know, if we were having this conversation 50 plus years ago, when nobody thought that your remedy in the event of a default was to rush off to court and get, you know, some monetary award or some other legal remedy, you know, the, the fact that there's no identifiable legal remedy doesn't mean the promise is worthless, right? The government might keep this promise for the same reason it kept its promise to repay or it keeps any of its other promises for reputational reasons or anything or anything like that. So in a way, the, the question here sh sharpens a little bit to what does it mean to make this separate promise? Um, and, and why would would governments be making these promises about ESG kinds of uses of proceeds in a way that can't be enforced legally when other promises they're making can be enforced legally. Maybe that's the question that we ought to be thinking about. I mean, legally, the only remedy here, if I'm getting paid and we're not gonna talk about accelerating and who, who the hell would want to accelerate if they're getting paid? Um, you know, that what you'd want is an injunction, right? Ordering the government to use the proceeds the way it promised. And I think we can, yeah. can I get the injunction? Actually, so that you 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 put it really well. Can I get the injunction saying, "Look, you promised to behave well. Now behave well." Like, will will a judge say, "Look, all right, we're gonna now monitor you, or we're we're gonna do something to make sure you fulfill your promise?" I mean, there would be no, in principle, yes, but there would be no meaningful enforcement mechanism. I mean, the the place you would want to go that could conceivably give you a remedy like that that would mean something is the issuer's own domestic courts, right? And there are some examples of domestic courts ordering governments to do more to meet climate commitments and so forth. But, you know, it's really hard to imagine a court in New York trying to order Mexico to use proceeds for a you know, more environmentally friendly purpose. So, you know, the part of the... Can I, can I ask just a, just yeah. a question, second, a question of you? Why should it matter that there is no clear legal enforcement mechanism for these commitments? Here's the reason why I think it matters. And you have to come at this from a place of deep skepticism about motivation. So my view, as you know, is that this is all bullshit. Like these people never cared about the environment and didn't care about kleptocratic governments and did not care about dictators uh, cheating on their elections and pretending that they'd won with 99% of the vote and any of these things, not to say anything about the fact that many of these uh, folks in their, their own funds and their own lives don't exactly show great concern 
for their fellow human beings. So all of a sudden now this is very popular. ESG is very popular. Everybody wants to do ESG and supposedly they all care about it. Now, if you think that they really care about it, then you should see that in their contracts, when they're contracting with Bolsonaro and Brazil about, you know, to make sure he preserves the Amazon, then I should see mechanisms in the contract that give them a stick with which to beat the misbehaving sovereigns. And they don't seem to have any sticks. Instead, these contracts just seem to be only with carrots. Actually, I can't even see the carrots to get them to behave well, although maybe we can talk about those step-up in basis uh, contracts. Okay, so, okay, so That's why okay. I, I think it's really important. If, if, if you drafted a contract with me that had no way to enforce uh, my action, then unless you make up some story about reputation and how I really care about, you know, my reputation, but, you know, many of these characters don't care about their reputation at all, uh, then I think this is just bullshit. So let, let's talk about the step up in basis now, because I think that that's the, so the idea here is that you, the issuer pays, you know, coupon X if it does, if it meets certain goals related to, to you know, climate objectives, but if it doesn't meet those goals, then it's X plus some premium. So the, the coupon steps up. And in a way that's this, like people I think have been sort of in critical at times about these bonds that provide for a basis step up. But I actually think this is the sensible enforcement mechanism. And in an ideal world, the step up would be punitive. Now that the puzzle, and this links to what you were saying, me too, about how investors maybe don't really care about um, these environmental goals, is that the step up in basis in the uh, in the market now is not punitive. In fact, it's not even meaningful. It's trivial. So it seems to me, look, the, there's a lot of demand for ESG bonds right now. Demand is presumably so great that, you know, as in other contexts, when there's a ton of demand, the supply is not necessarily super high quality. Um, and right now, it seems like investors don't want to pay for genuine, um, meaningful ESG commitments. So they pay in the form of giving the issue or policy flexibility. Governments always want that. They never want to tie their hands. Investors don't want to accept meaningfully lower yields. And so you get this sort of tepid mishmash where the environmental commitments don't really mean a whole heck of a lot. So let, let me, I am, I'm, I'm still not persuaded that the step up, even if it was big, would indicate a commitment. So, and here's, but I, my thoughts are not fully developed on this, but here's what, what concerns me, but maybe I'm not thinking about this right. So if I were thinking about how to design a contract to ensure that Ruritania does come through on its green commitments, and I know Ruritania really needs the money. I would say that, I would say in the contract, I'd make it clear that if they don't meet certain markers, 
And I'd be really specific about the markers. They don't meet these markers. And I'd have determination by some credible neutral third party. Then I get my money back because that's the thing that they want. I would not design it to say, if they don't meet the markers, they just pay me more. That's just, I mean, that's the latter situation suggests to me that they don't actually care about this. They still just care about the thing that I was convinced was the only thing they cared about, which was more money. If you don't satisfy your environmental commitments, the, the investor gets more money. But that suggests that they care about the money, not about the environmental commitment. Now, I realize that, you know, in the, the, these investment houses are running around saying, oh, yeah, we're thinking about creative ways to ensure that they behave. And we have these step up or whatever. No. And actually, if they had the step down, big step down for behaving well, then maybe I would be persuaded. And, and I could be wrong. Maybe they do have, maybe they have designed nice step downs. I'm not sure I understand the source of your concern. I mean, if I say I'm willing to buy your house and if you make certain kinds of changes to it, that'll make it more environmentally friendly, I'll pay you 200. And if you don't, I'll pay you 100. I still want the house. I mean, of course, that's a sign that I value uh, and I'm trying to pursue environmental objectives. Um, the problem is that in practice, what they're saying is I'll pay you, you know, 100,000 and, you know, 15 cents if you do the environmental stuff and 100,000 if you won't. And, you know, that suggests it's just sort of purely cosmetic. But I don't, to me, this, the step up makes perfect sense. This is exactly the kind of situation where you'd want a penalty clause. You'd, the, the issuer commits to meeting its objectives. And if not, it gets smacked around with a much higher coupon. That seems like sensible contract design. Oh, no, it's trivial. No, I think this is these agents don't give a shit about the, the stepping up. They just want the money and somebody else is going to pay it back anyway. So maybe I should have framed it in terms of agency costs. But maybe all of this is just framed in terms of my deep skepticism. But we get to talk about that skepticism even more when we get to the, the specific language disclaiming contract liability uh, after our break. But let, let's take a break now. And then we'll come back to the specific language that uh, I think shows my uh, case to be strong. So we're back from the break. And Mark, as often is the case, has a much clearer articulation of what's going on. And this time, as is often the case, as a clearer articulation of why I'm wrong. And I have learned over the years to just recognize and accept it when Mark tells me I'm wrong. So he, his point, I think, is that I am complaining too much about this step up in basis and that it's just a penalty and that penalty will affect incentives of the sovereign. I tried in our break to, you know, weave some extra additional story about agency costs and things like that, but uh, my muddled thinking did not persuade him. So Mark, if, if you could explicate your view on this, and then, then maybe we can 
go to talk about the specific disclaimers of any legal liability? I don't think I have a particularly complicated view. And to be clear, I, I think these contracts seem to be really you are supposed to say it's complicated because at least that gives a justification for why yeah, it's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, hold on. The contract, the problem is that the step up in the coupon is trivial. If the step up was meaningful, then I would think that this was a meaningful commitment to achieving environmental objectives. And, and that it, in some respects, a, an ideal contract would make the step up punitive. That's my point. It is none of those things. It's trivial, which is um, part of the problem. The problem is that investors don't really seem to be putting real money where, where their mouth is on, on, on these kinds of commitments. But what I think you and I wanted to do is come back to this, the bond that we were using as an example, the Mexican bond, and talk about um, the whether investors have this acceleration remedy that they seem at least potentially to have. So um, one of the events of default is for any scenario where Mexico fails to perform any other obligation under the debt securities and doesn't cure the failure. And it's at least reasonable, if not definitive, to say that one of the obligations is to use the money in the way it's supposed to be used. Um, so, um, Mitu, I know you want to talk about the weird disclaimer in the prospectus that seems to undermine that argument, that seems to say, no, it's not an event of default at all. But I want to just start with the assumption that this is an event of default if the government doesn't use the money the way it says it's going to use it. Who the hell wants to bring that claim? You've got to go to the trustee. I mean, let's say you're still being paid and you just object to the fact that they're using the money to you know, burn giant piles of rubber. Um, you're going to go to the trustee and say, although I, we're getting paid, we'd really like you to sue to try to, to force the government. I mean, no trustee is going to want to even take your call. So am I wrong about that? You are correct. So I think you're coming over to the dark side the dark side of deep skepticism. This is another reason why this stuff is bullshit. You, you're not gonna, you're getting paid on this bond. It's, it's working just fine. If you by some miracle are able to declare an event of default, you're gonna cause the value of all of this sovereign's bonds to tank and you're gonna hurt yourself. So you're not gonna do it. In addition, as you correctly point out, the trustee is not going to collaborate with you in doing this. So the, the contract has been designed to make sure in this additional aspect, to make sure none of this works. And, you know, when we talk sometimes to our investor friends, they say stuff like, oh, we're reading the contract really carefully. Our lawyers are reading it really carefully. And, you know, we really care about this. And I read what they've contracted for, and I think, okay, you are showing in what you contract for and what you guys read carefully and put in place that you don't actually want any enforcement to happen. So this is an area of agreement. The guy, they need to figure out a way to get this all to work if they care about any of this. We, so we basically agree, and when you say I'm... I'm I'm coming over to the dark side. I started on the dark side. The, oh, difference, the difference between us is that I think 
one can write a relatively straightforward contract tied to achieving some environmental objectives and use the coupon step up as an enforcement mechanism. The problem is that the current step ups are so trivial that they can't really perform that function. But I think that's a, a meaningful solution and it kind of executes itself in, a, in a, a way that makes sense. But the, I mean, the problem here is the problem that you're, uh, you started us with, which is that you know, investors need to say that they're meeting their customers' demand for, um, you know, green investment. And so they're clamoring for it, but there's so many people clamoring for it right now that it seems like you don't have to sell anything meaningful. So these, these bonds seem to give investors essentially no assurance that the government is going to do what it says it's going to do. But, you know, to think about this maybe a little bit differently, part of the problem is that climate objectives unfold over decades. So one of the issues is you've got to identify some targets that are going to be meaningful and that are going to be satisfied or not satisfied clearly within the lifespan of the bond. That's a complication too, isn't it? Yes. Now, I mean, that this is, uh, I mean, that you're now you're making it even more difficult and more plausible as to, you know, why we haven't thought any of this through. And, I, you know, I'll confess to often having deep skepticism of things like, you know, our university's uh, diversity initiatives, uh, you know, they, 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 they seem to really care about having pretty pictures on their websites that, you know, highlight all the diverse students. But when it comes to real commitments to ensuring, you know, progressive outcomes for students who are disadvantaged, then I, I'm not really sure they care that much. And this just seems uh, very similar to those kinds of initiatives and, and, and sort of I don't know. I want to be proved wrong because I, I care a lot about the environment and I, I would really like it if investors could, you know, put their foot on the neck of some of these countries that are misbehaving in both in terms of social goals and environmental goals, but they, they haven't persuaded me and they're not doing the work of designing good enough contracts yet. Now, maybe it's just really early. I think one uh, defense that they could could give us is that it's really early. We're just trying to figure it out. You yourselves know from your research that it takes a long time to design good contracts, and we're working on this. And supposedly, uh, the ICMA, International uh, Capital Markets Association, is working on designing contracts. But what I've seen so far from the ICMA uh, group in in this direction does does not uh, not encouraging. It's not encouraging. And then, you know, I think in our limited time, we should talk a little bit about uh, the risk factor disclosures that I only noticed recently, thanks to our friend Matt Wirtz's article in the Wall Street Journal. And he talks about the corporate risk disclosures, but it got me to look at the sovereigns. And you read the Mexican one, but uh, I looked 
there are even worse ones. Chile. I think maybe I showed you the Hungary one because I, I was I was thinking, well, maybe in the European context, the EU, because of their super commitment to green, blah, blah. At least they police this. And the Hungarian one was even worse than uh, the Chilean one. But Mark, they say in the risk disclosures, there's no contract liability. And now, is it, can you disclaim contract liability for failing to meet your contractual goals in a risk disclosure? This, does, does this even work or is it just, is it A, bad lawyering or is it B, trying to persuade investors who don't have good lawyers that, oh, you can't actually do anything if the sovereign misbehaves? Uh, yeah, I don't have the faintest idea. I mean, the, part of the problem I suspect that motivated some of this language in the prospectus is that it's, you know, technology changes quickly, the politics change quickly, and it's almost impossible to predict with certainty just what steps you are going to be taking to achieve climate-related goals. You know, it, it may be in an infrastructure project, it's a little easier, but in general, um, it's pretty hard. And so one way to read some of these disclaimers is just pointing out to investors, we might not do exactly the things that are described in our current ESG framework, but that doesn't mean we won't do something that is consistent with the sort of spirit and the underlying intent. So, I mean, I don't know what to make of this, this, these disclosures in the prospectus, but they don't have to be read as absolute disclaimers of contractual liability. Um, and you know, if there's a clear promise in the contract, then I, I don't, I'm not an expert here, but no, I don't think that you can disclaim liability for breach of a clear promise. Maybe what you say is that the language, language in the prospectus helps reveal that there's no promise at all. But once you found a promise, I don't think the language in the prospectus disclaiming liability can take it away. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, I mean, you know, going back to sort of the classic corporate bond case, the MetLife versus RJR Nabisco case, mm -hmm. where the investors tried to Sue, so, if I remember correctly, there was a leveraged buyout and the value of the bonds tanked because, you know, the basically management was trying to load up the company with massive debt. And there were all these, uh, in the risk factors, there were all these statements about how, you know, we care deeply about maintaining our credit rating and, we, you know, we'll, we'll fall on our sword about the credit rating. And the court basically said, yeah, it's not in the contract. There's, this is just all a bunch of bullshit statements. Now, if that's the case, then if, if it's only the contract language, that's the contract, uh, then none of this, this matters. So, you know, you could say in your risk factor disclosure, uh, we are disclaiming any sort of uh, contract liability if we don't satisfy these goals and there'll be no event of default if we don't satisfy these goals. But it gives me the heebie-jeebies that these sovereigns are asking their lawyers to draft this language at the time that they're issuing these new uh, ESG bonds. It, it suggests that right at the start, 
they're thinking we're not going to comply. We're just going to use the language to do whatever we want. But I want to add one more thing. So in the Chilean 2021 bond, and there are, I was looking at the, the issuances on Dialogic and, you know, it, the, the, there's been a significant increase in the number of sovereigns using the green slash social bond uh, rubric to do their issuances. So they certainly seem to perceive that this is the rubric under which we should issue. But I noticed that there was language in the use of proceeds section as well. So in the beginning of the use of proceeds section, and this is only in the prospectus, I didn't look at the fiscal agency agreement, but you know, uh, I suspect this is not there there, but in the use of proceeds uh, discussion disc slash disclosure, the first three paragraphs seem to be about, you know, all the stuff that we're gonna do. And then the last two paragraphs, if you can read the fine print down, are all about, yeah, but we're not, you know, we're not necessarily going to do any of this. I mean, are they just counting on people not reading it? Or is the more benign explanation that, look, all of this stuff is really hard to do, so we promise to do it, and you should just trust us to do it. But, you know, bottom line, I mean, I can't even... All right, I'll stop there. And I have a whole nother level of skepticism that maybe we don't even need to go to. But Mark, even in the use of proceeds section, they're disclaiming that they'll really use it. Yeah, I mean, so look, the way I have been thinking about it, and I, and I find it puzzling as well, but the way I've been mostly thinking about this is that like, on the merits, like can an investor object say there has been non-compliance or an event of default if the government, let's just pick an extreme example, it just takes the proceeds and it uses them to you know, pay, some other, pay off some other bond as it matures, right? But you know, they'd say, otherwise it's staying current on this bond. Could can an investor plausibly say that's an event of default? Sure. And I think that answer, that's always the answer, even with all of these weird, um, kind of slippery caveats in the prospectuses, even the Chilean one that you talk about. Um, you know, the it's claim is not as easy as a straight claim for non-payment, but you know, it, it's a relatively plausible, probably better than 50-50 claim on the merits. The problem is the one that we talked about at the beginning, which is like, what really is your remedy? And under most of these contracts, it's just hard to imagine a meaningful remedy. Uh, again, as long as the government is current on the, the payment obligations. So I don't know, I think I am confused by all the squirrely language in the prospectuses. It does sound like the governments are trying to take away the promises they've made elsewhere in the contract. But you know, when push comes to shove, I don't think that's, um, that's likely to work. I've seen some statements in the reported in the press about how these you know contracts aren't worth the paper they're printed on. The promises are worthless. I would not go that far. I think the promises are worth something in the sense that they could plausibly um, be viewed as as events of default. I just don't think that there's a meaningful remedy. And I think if investors want to um, have outsiders like us take them seriously 
in their purported ESG commitments. They need to articulate in the contract clear goals that have to be satisfied and clear penalties for failing to, to achieve those goals. But anything short of that, and certainly with squirrely language like we see in the contracts we've been talking about today, I don't think they should count towards meeting your ESG objectives at all. Okay, I like this. I really like this. I think that, okay, you might have actually figured this out. I think we should not count it towards the meeting ESG objectives for the investors. I think investors need to say, look, if you're gonna have squirrely language like this, we won't count your bond. You can call it green or yellow or you know whatever on, on the front, but we're not gonna buy that. You, you, need to, you need to have real language here and you know maybe the step up in basis or uh, would actually work, but the, adding this this kind of uh, risk uh, factor disclosure or caveats in the re- use of proceeds really should result in your not getting uh, the benefit of whatever you know new popularity there is for all of this ESG stuff. So I, I mean. I, I want to just raise one last uh, point before we end this this episode that has been really fun. We should do this more often where we just talk to each other. So I, I learned so much from you. But um, the, the last point has to do with one of the findings in a paper we discussed recently and Matt Levine's piece uh, this morning in his wonderful Bloomberg column. So the finding that we saw in the paper on ESG investing and returns to investors was that investors don't seem to be suffering uh, a penalty or making, uh, you know, uh, big gains from investing in ESG or not investing in ESG. But it, the focus was on in, if you invest in ESG, you're not suffering a penalty. Now that, that was put forward as, as a benefit. Look, you can be all uh, you know, holier than thou and you're not gonna suffer a financial penalty. But if it really is the case that the market is segmenting, so when, I, when, I, when we say market is segmenting, what I mean is that the investors are giving money to good, well-behaved countries and not giving money to badly behaved countries, then what we should see is that the returns on badly behaved countries, so let's say I'm a bad person who doesn't care about the quality of the environment, I should start making higher returns from investing in the badly behaved companies because they're not having to suffer the cost of being all environmentally pious or socially pious. So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying, drawing from Matt Levine's piece today that, look, the fact that you're not suffering a penalty is another suggestion (laughs) this is working very well. So it's so for me too. I mean, let me just add something to that. So I think that one of the standard, but I think sort of unsatisfying rejoinders to that is, well, you know, the if you are enabling countries to spend money on 
you know, climate adaptation and various other ESG objectives, that's going to have all kinds of positive economic spillovers and that ought to, um, that ought to uh, not sort of be a cost, right? The, the country, the issuer ought to be in more um, a stronger economic Good position. Point, no, 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 let me finish, let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> Let me finish. The, even if that's that kind of happy, optimistic story is true, the time frame at which that um, that benefit happens doesn't map on at all to the time frame of a lot of sovereign bonds, right? We're talking about potentially an improvement that will be seen over decades. Uh, meanwhile, the bond is long since going to have come and matured. So um, I find it quite puzzling that there is at best no difference, right? No, no penalty to returns for ESG investing. Um, I don't buy that the, you know, the extra, um, the, the, the sovereign's investments are reducing its default risk over the life of the bond or otherwise strengthening its economy. I don't know how to explain these minimal pricing effects, except to say that ESG stuff is kind of meaningless. Yeah, that, that I was that was the point. I'm glad glad you stopped me from interrupting you because I was just going to make the point that you made it earlier, which is the time horizons don't really match up because the the time horizon where you would expect to see these big benefits from preserving the environment or putting in place socially beneficial uh, mechanisms, say with pensions and good healthcare, is different from the returns on yeah. these short-term investments. And my bond matures in 10 years. I don't give a shit what you're going to look like <laughs> exactly. in 30, 40, 50 years from now. Exactly. Now, maybe this is all just beginning and we're, we're just being too harsh on this, but... Uh, I, I think it is worth holding these folks' feet to the fire in terms of the claims that so many of them are making. And, you know, maybe they'll have good rejoinders if they actually listen to us, or maybe uh, the big institutions like the IMF and the World Bank that also seem to be on the ESG bandwagon. They're all, you know, beating the drum. Uh, in the COVID context of how we need to, you know, do more of this, maybe they'll 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 make this system more credible. But um, thanks thanks for indulging me uh, for us to have this conversation. It's been really fun. So. Thank you. Me too. I, we will talk, no doubt, in a couple of days. But it's a